This conference will now be recorded. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me for the first time now, in this series anyway, Hebrews chapter 13. We begin our 13th and final chapter. Um, it's the last chapter I have in my Bible, and probably you too, <laughs> unless God decides to write a 14th chapter real quick. But I think we're almost done. We are, uh, we've been in Hebrews now, uh, coming up on, uh, I think Robert said we're approaching our third year, something like that. Been a while. And uh, we're ready now to start chapter 13. In some ways, chapter 13 is like a whole new book. It's like really the, the theological treatise ended with chapter 12. And uh, chapter 13 is almost uh, an appendix or uh, an attached letter. Uh, and we'll see that here shortly as we introduce it. Before we start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's call, call upon our Father and his faithfulness to uh, open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Shall we pray? Father, we are in your hands. Once again, we thank you for this study. We thank you for every study. Father, we're, we're feasting in Colossians. We're feasting in Proverbs. We're feasting in Hebrews. Father, uh, you are blessing the saints of Austin Bible Church with, with a true wealth. And, uh, I just thank you that uh, there are brothers and sisters that are not, uh, not coming for the fun and games or the programs or the entertainment. They, uh, they're hungry for truth. And, uh, and I thank you that this is a lampstand where the truth goes forth. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. So, Father, we're here once again to receive instruction. We are uh, humble before you, Father, because we know that none of us deserves to be here. We are fearful with a reverence, the fear of the Lord, Father. As you've taught us, you are a consuming fire, and we stand in your glory. So, Father, uh, humble us today to receive the word implanted. It is able to save our souls, and we need that, Father. Equip us and feed us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's uh, get our first glimpse at uh, Hebrews chapter 13. I'll put a Bible back up on the window there. And uh, you might recall that uh, as chapter 12 ended, which we wrapped up last week, in contrasting what Israel dealt with in their shaking mountain and what we receive, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's, that's us. We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's the fear of the Lord. That is the awe. And I really think that the word awesome is uh, overdone in our culture, and uh, it's used far too frequently. And I, I'm, I'm working hard to not use it in the uh, extraneous ways. I, I'm using, I'm trying very hard to only use awe in the legitimate biblical sense of the fear of the Lord, and in, in utter shock and awe that he allows me to be saved and to be a part of his plan and uh, to reserve the word awe and awesome for the glories of, of what our God is accomplishing on our behalf. 
for our God is a consuming fire. And so we should, we should um, function this way. This is what our priesthood is about. And this conclusion, I mean, if you just look at these verses, and we just read them, verses 28 and 29 of Hebrews 12, this is the conclusion to the book. I mean, this is the conclusion to, uh, you could say, to the priestly portion of the book in chapters 12 and following. Or you could say it's a portion, it's a conclusion to the to the warning segments of uh, of Hebrews, maybe starting in Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 3. You could say it's the conclusion to the entire book that begins with uh, with God, who spoke in many portions in many ways in his last days, has spoken to us in his son. And you have a, a preamble to the book of Hebrews that is probably the most glorious of any preamble to any book of any uh, in the Bible. And so from Hebrews 1.1 to Hebrews 12.28, we have a marvelous blessing. Let me read this properly so I don't misquote it. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. You realize how commending that is? It's not a normal epistle. He's not, the author doesn't even tell us who he is. It is. This is far different from, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the saints in Colossae, grace to you and peace. This book does not start off as an epistle. This book starts off with a thundering introduction and then gives you 12 chapters of, of glorious truth related to the rest of God, the priesthood of our priesthood of Melchizedek, the Hall of Fame of Faith, our urgency to run with endurance, the race that's set before us, and all these things. So we have a an introduction to the book here. Let me just read it. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He actually fashioned the ages. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So take those four verses, and you have some profoundly deep truth. As it relates to the glory of our Savior, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And this truth is then presented in 12 chapters of this book. And it comes to a, a conclusion, really, in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, with the uh, what we have received and how we show gratitude in uh, offering to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And those are the bookends. The powerful prologue, the powerful uh, conclusion, and this amazing book that we have. Follow by chapter 13, all right? So, like I say, the uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, uh, I think it was Luke, could have been Barnabas, whoever it was, that wrote uh, that wrote this book wrote these twelve powerful chapters and then again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he drafted a uh, a chapter 
that uh, is more reminiscent of a Pauline epistle, more reminiscent of a New Testament book, includes some of the features we might expect, including a lot of urging in these early verses and some greetings at the end, uh, some personal notes that uh, he hopes to be with them shortly and uh, that, that Timothy's been released and things like that. There's some little personal notes. Those who are in Italy greet you, that kind of thing. So um, I'm, I'm glad that we have chapter 13 attached to the end of this because it, it helps us to kind of breathe a little bit. And, and uh, it's, it's certainly uh, uh, not as intense as the first 12 chapters. And uh, But yet there's good doctrine here. We're going to glean a lot from it. So we can start with uh, verse 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that I w- that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. All right, well, it goes, it goes beyond that. I'll, I'll stop the reading there. Um, that's a good kind of kickoff to the epilogue chapter. The chapter is so different, by the way, it has caused some people through the centuries, not really through the early centuries, but starting in the 1800s when higher criticism started to question everything and when uh, source criticism started to wonder if uh, some of our New Testament books were compositions of uh, or compilations of of various other sources and legends. um, it, It caused some scholars to wonder if Hebrews 13 was not original to the book of Hebrews, if it was tacked on by a different author in a different time frame. Um, we, we reject all that, and, and we we find very clearly uh, like-mindedness between chapter 13 and the first 12 chapters, and there's really no internal reason to uh, to separate it other than the fact that it's obviously with a different spirit, with a different attitude, with a different uh, focus. Uh, the theological treatise is is complete. And now this this final personal exhortation is uh, is coming across in this chapter. I don't know how far we'll get today, at least verse uh, 1 and 2, hopefully, and maybe 1, 2, and 3. We'll see how far we get. I'm skeptical, uh, but we do have to, and, and you all are very skeptical, I know. Um, by virtue of being on camera, I can't see the rolling of the eyes and the, the groaning of the uh, of the audience that uh, that understands how slow these things get from from time to time. Uh, but let the love of the brethren continue. Let Philadelphia abide. And um, Philadelphia is the love of the brethren. And it's going to be very connected to verse 2. Our Hebrews hour is not the exegetical hour. And you all can be very thankful for that. The um, It's uh, the last hour that we spend weeks and weeks on on prepositions and pronouns and and linking verbs together and things like that. In the 11 o'clock hour, we tend to be big picture. We tend to be with a larger overview of things. 
That's why uh, Hebrews can be a three-year study instead of a 20-year study, because uh, we're not getting bogged down in some of the some of the deep exegesis. Here in verses one and two, though, I'm going to give you just a little bit so that you can see the play on words that you would miss otherwise, and uh, the fun that the author had, I think, to put these things together. And since he had fun writing it and I had fun reading it, I want us all to have fun understanding it for what it is. So starting in verse one, understand why this is such a break here. The theological treatise of Hebrews, what I'm calling Hebrews one through 12 as a theological treatise. It's not an epistle. It's different from Romans and first Corinthians and second. I mean, it's different from all of the New Testament epistles because it is a theological treatise. It is now followed by a brief word of exhortation. And I, that's what I'm titling Hebrews 13. So I'm, I'm titling verses, uh, chapters 1 through 12, the, the theological treatise of Hebrews, followed by Hebrews 13, which I think is what the author is intending when he talks about a brief word of exhortation. And uh, one of the things that makes people laugh sometimes is when they get to the end of the book of Hebrews and they read Hebrews 13, 22. This is, this is how the epistle actually ends. I think the theological treatise ends with our God is a flaming, is a consuming fire. That's the conclusion to the theological treatise. But this uh, epistle, when he tacks on an, an, an epistolary, um, an epistolary addendum when he attaches chapter 13 to the end of his theological treatise. He, uh, he, he does say here, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. <laughs> okay, I have written to you briefly. And there's a lot of attention paid to that, um, particularly because a lot of people assume that it refers to all 13 chapters. And then they laugh and say, what author in the New Testament would ever consider the, a work, the length of Hebrews to be something brief? It's, it's larger than anything Paul ever wrote. It's larger than Romans. It's larger than first Corinthians. Um, I think, uh, I haven't counted the, the, uh, the words, but there's 13 chapters, 13 very long chapters. Romans, I know Romans has 16 and first Corinthians has 16, but, um, Nevertheless, this is a lengthy book, and I don't know any author that could say I've written to you briefly if that phrase applies to the whole book. And so I think this I have written to you briefly is connected to this uh, this word of exhortation here. And I'm limiting that. I'll just color them yellow here. I am uh, I'm limiting that to chapter 13. <laughs> Bear with this word of exhortation that uh, that his readers can appreciate that he he took the time to to tack on a uh, a chapter of personal exhortation uh, to go with all of the other exhortations that are filled uh, filling that theological treatise of chapters one through twelve if that makes any sense and then a few other personal notes take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon, I will see you. And um, greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. <clears throat> so these are these are uh, the closing 
greetings, the closing details, uh, some of the things that we talked about way back three years ago when we began this study, because they give us our best clues as to authorship and recipients and place of writing and, and other circumstances like that as well. In fact, this is kind of all we have to go by in the uh, internal evidence of the text are the little glimpses and clues that we have here. So based upon verse 22, if uh, if I'm correct, and when he says, um, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly, uh, that's the description he's assigning to this 13th chapter. And the author himself giving us a clue that um, this is different than the overall theological treatise that uh, he has this masterpiece, this magnum opus of uh, of Hebrews that is Hebrews chapter 1 through 12. Our God is a consuming fire. That's the conclusion there. Now we know from chapter 6 and from chapter 10, we know that the Hebrew epistle recipients have a past and present track record of love. And it's curious to me that when he does, uh, when the author does decide to tack on a 13th chapter, and when it gets real personal with his readers, the first thing he starts with is keep it up. <laughs> he says, he doesn't say start loving one another. They already do. Philadelphia already existed in the local church where these original recipients uh, ministered. Okay. And we don't know who they were. We don't know where they were. Various legends that these were, uh, these were the saints in, uh, in Antioch, you know, or, these were the saints uh, uh, in Rome or other places. There, there's different legends as far as which church this was, uh, but it doesn't matter. If it mattered, uh, the scripture would have told us. But the original Hebrew epistle recipients, that's what I mean by the first crowd that this letter was sent to before it was recognized as being canon and put in the canon. The original Hebrew epistle recipients, they have a track record, a past track record and a present track record of love. And uh, we saw, we saw that already, and, and it says in uh, you know let it continue. We'll stress the present tense on that. Uh, but when you go back to Hebrews six, you'll notice. So I type it for us here. Hebrews six ten. God is not unjust so as to forget your work, and the agape love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Make that slightly larger there, so I never know how large or how small to make it for people. All right. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the agape love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So it was past and present it's still ongoing and that they have this this labor this labor of love and they're ministering they're serving one another serving the saints and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so we we don't just rest on our laurels we don't stop with the love and and say okay i've done enough now there's enough reward waiting for me uh, no, as soon as you stop living in love, you're throwing away your rewards. And uh, scripture tells us don't do that. Don't throw away your rewards. Hold fast what you have. And it's a matter of staying faithful till we hear the trumpet. So it's a track record. And in that track record, 
uh, he's uh, the author starts with this in Hebrews 13:1, and uh, tells them to keep continuing it. Don't ever drop it. Let it abide. Let it dwell on into the future. And really, that's the uh, the sense in Hebrews 13:1 that it already exists. That it already exists. In fact, it's an imperative. It's a third person imperative. It's uh, you know, let it be. Okay, let it make it, let it continue, let it abide. And a third person imperative is commanding something to be done. Let Philadelphia continue. And uh, we're, again, not to get too exegetical with this. Hey, Philadelphia, Minato. That's it. Three short words. Hey, Philadelphia, Minato. And so love is the subject. Philadelphia love is the subject. And Philadelphia love is being commanded to continue, to abide, to remain, to dwell. Meno is our verb that we study in John 15. We study in other passages when we talk about abiding in Christ or abiding in the vine. Uh, it's our word for abiding, remaining, dwelling. It's our verb uh, not for a, a quickie visit or an overnight stay it's a it's our word for a long-term abiding and uh, the familiarity that comes with the long-term abiding and so philadelphia has to abide let it abide and the neat thing about a third person command most commands most imperatives in the in the bible are, are second person imperatives where the speaker is is addressing somebody in the second person saying, you do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Most imperatives are second-person imperatives. Um, sometimes imperatives are first-person, where the author includes himself. And so he says, let us, let us run with endurance. Let us, you know, uh, do these things. And so a first-person imperative is is uh, is very frequent in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is very fond of the first-person imperative. But this is a third-person imperative. This is talking about something else. In this case, Philadelphia. Let Philadelphia continue. Let Philadelphia abide. See, and Philadelphia is as a as a as a concept. Philadelphia that's that's brotherly love. Philos love. Uh, Adelphos brother. You get brotherly love. Now we saw in chapter six it was mutual agape. And as they were serving one another, ministering one another with mutual agape, it generates this, this uh, atmosphere of Philadelphia. They had a Philadelphia atmosphere in their church. And uh, the author of Hebrews wants that to continue, to abide, to dwell, to live there forevermore. And that's the imperative that we see here. And uh, similar to what we have in Hebrews 10.24, you might remember. When he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And uh, this is the first person imperative. Let us, we all need to be doing this. And that's a way that the author can, he's not just barking orders at somebody in the second person. He's including himself in it. And he says, let's all do this. Let us consider. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Again, that's agape love. 
not forsaking our own assembling together, not a, not forsaking rapture doctrine, as is the ha- habit of some. <coughs> so the emphasis here and in the future is to continue on in love. And as each believer, as each believer expresses agape love towards every other believer, in other words, the pastor expresses agape love to the flock. The flock expresses agape love to one another and back to the pastor as everybody agapa owes everybody else. Remember that the, the, the key of agape love is not taking into account the merit of the object. You're loving from the standpoint of your own integrity, your own character, your own soul. But as this love continues, as the agape is reciprocally expressed, what then gets generated is Philadelphia. Philadelphia comes into existence. It's like a secondary generation. It's not, it's not created ex nihilo. It's not created out of nothing, but it is generated as a consequence of the mutual reciprocal agape love that we are showing one to another. And so it's being exhorted to continue on. It, They've got a past record, a present track record. He urges them to keep on expressing love and to consider how to stimulate one another. Sometimes uh, love requires stimulation. You got to get the sharp stick and get a poke in the hindquarters to 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 get that love reengaged and uh, to keep the keep that stimulation going. That was the chapter ten exhortation. And so here, let Philadelphia abide. That's the uh, the nature of a third person imperative. Make it so. Make it so. Okay. Like the Star Trek quote. Make it so. And uh, and really the best part about a third person imperative <laughs> is it's going to happen if you don't stop it. It's going to happen if you just continue doing what you should be doing. Stay in the will of God. Stay in the word of God. Keep serving one another. All these things. And as you do these things, Philadelphia will continue. Philadelphia will abide. See, I'm going to use Philadelphia a lot. I'm not talking about the city in Pennsylvania. Okay, I'm talking about uh, the, the the Philadelphia love that a local church should have uh, in existence, abiding in that flock, abiding in that flock. So that's how it begins. Philadelphia love, this might blow your mind a little bit. Philadelphia love is love for God, is love for God. And you say, well, wait a minute. You just you told me earlier that it's philos and adelphos, love of the brethren. So if I want to generate Philadelphia love, I've got to find brothers and sisters and start loving them. Wait a minute, okay? Don't confuse the etymology with the usage. Don't confuse the, uh, you know, the, the, the parts of a, of a noun, the constituent parts of a noun, and get lost in what Scripture tells us is the basis for this kind of love. And Scripture tells us that the only way you can have Philadelphia love is by loving God. In other words, that, you got to have it in the right order. If you don't agape God, if you don't love God, you will never have Philadelphia love for God's children. You will never have Philadelphia love for the brethren. And if you try to have love for the brethren, 
if you try to have philos without agape, if you try to have rapport and fellowship and and the the philos love that's that's built into the Philadelphia love, if you're trying to have rapport and you don't have agape, there's no foundation for it. And uh, this is true in a local church. This is true in a marriage. This is true in in uh, in all the expectations that the Bible has, where agape love is preeminent. And then all the other forms of love are, are built upon that foundation. So um, when it says, let the love of the brethren continue, the uh, the first clue in, uh, in, in doing this is to love God. And when Jesus is teaching the, the sheep and goat parable, to me, he makes this plain as day. Because he says, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Remember this? Remember this parable? This is the the standard of judgment when he conquers at Armageddon and when he um, gathers the Gentiles together for judgment in sheep and goat judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This hasn't happened yet. This is still future. We are pre-tribulational, rapturous, and pre-millennialists. Uh, so Jesus is not yet on the throne of David in Jerusalem, judging the world. But that day is coming. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another, either all the nations or all the Gentiles. And uh, gather before him. And he's going to divide them left and right. You thought it was you thought it was impressive when Moses parted the Red Sea? Jesus is going to part all the Gentiles left and right. Believers on the left, on the right, uh, and uh, unbelievers on the left. All right. So he will put the sheep on his right, goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So born-again believers, blessed of the Father, unbelievers aren't blessed of the Father, born-again believers that survive the tribulation, they get to enter into the kingdom. They get to inherit the kingdom. And they're going to uh, to enter in, and they become the, the uh, forefathers of all the millennial saints that get born during the millennium. So they're not raptured. They're not trans, uh, they're not uh, resurrected. They're still in their mortal bodies, having survived the tribulation. They enter into the millennium so they can have the millennial babies and uh, repopulate the earth for the thousand years. Jesus says, for I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This, by the way, this theme of uh, remember the prisoners is another element that comes up in Hebrews 13.1. I think the author of Hebrews 13 is actually adapting the sheep and goat judgment passage for uh, his exhortation here in, uh, in Hebrews 13. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When, uh, or, and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? 
when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And so the love applications of how they served one another in love and ministered to one another in this way is uh, Philadelphia love in action. It's agape love in action, but it's a reflection of their love for God. Based upon their love for God, they were serving the brethren. Or not, in the case of the goats, as he says to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All right, they're not blessed, they're cursed. And the reason why they're cursed is because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They are judged already. They are condemned in Adam. And uh, their lost estate is reflected in their activity. Again, to the extent you did not do it to one of these least of these, you did not do it to me. And so adapting this principle in Romans, in Hebrews 13, then, when we, when we read, let the, let Philadelphia abide, we understand that the basis for Philadelphia abiding It's only going to happen so long as we keep loving the Lord. We keep walking in love towards one another. And that's the only way it's going to happen. How about Romans 12? Romans 12, verses 10 and 11. There was a chat message I missed, and I think it had a question. I can't always read these. I apologize. I don't don't see a lot of them. And then... uh, Okay, it's a question about the vocabulary, nations and Gentiles. It's the same word. The same word for nations is the same word for Gentiles. All right. So, um, Romans 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is how a church functions together. In fact, if you back up a little bit, this is what unhypocritical love is all about. This is the recipe for a healthy church. Let love be, let agape be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in Philadelphia. Brotherly love. And this is this requires a devotion. A devotion is something you sacrifice other things for. Give preference to one another in honor. Outdo one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit. And here's the biggest clue serving the lord okay serving the lord if you ever forget that or the times that you go carnal and the moments that you're selfish or or boohooing or what have you uh, every time you lose your spirit your your um, grace objectivity and you plunge into a, a a carnal subjectivity and you start feeling sorry for yourself or you start um You've you've lost it. You, you're no longer serving the Lord, and you've lost the motivation to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Why would you? Why would Philadelphia continue if you're not serving the Lord? Because uh, in human terms, in carnality, in our flesh, we're all back to that "What have you done for me lately?" attitude, and 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 what do I get out of this? And and uh and uh i you know why would i serve you i don't even like you it's not about that it's about loving the lord and when we are serving the lord we have the real motivation for philadelphia love 
So Philadelphia love is love for God. And I hope that's clear. That should uh, that should just jump right out at us. That if we ever stop loving the Lord, uh, there is no way that we can legitimately love one another and serve one another and function as believer priests in the church age. Uh, because our priesthood is this priesthood of love. That's the commandment Jesus gave in the upper room. Love one another. And that's our prime directive as uh, Melchizedek believer priests in the church age. So when the author of Hebrews decides to get personal, when the author of Hebrews uh, attaches a uh, a personal uh, chapter uh, at the end of this great uh, theological treatise, he says, keep that, uh, keep that Philadelphia love going. Let Philadelphia abide. Let Philadelphia continue. All right, and then he parallels that. He's got a great play on words in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, uh, let the love of strangers abide. And he uh, he follows up Philadelphia with hospitality. Philadelphia in verse 1, hospitality in verse 2. We have Philadelphia love for one another, for us but also for the strangers, those that aren't us, but they're among us. They join us. And so are we welcoming? Do we greet these strangers? How long does it take for a stranger to become a brother? Well, guess what? What if the stranger already is a brother and is just now being introduced to your local church, to your immediate fellowship? How long does he stay a stranger at that point when he realize, wait a minute, he's a brother in Christ? And we have the beginnings of, of uh, what uh, what becomes the uh, the Philadelphia as they fit into our church family. I, I, I tell you, I've had a, I think I've said this many times. Uh, the very first time I ever visited Austin Bible Church was a Wednesday night. It was May 9th of 1990, and I drove down from Fort Hood and I was visiting, and uh, Ralph Braun was the pastor back then, and uh, and uh, that first night, I, I sat there and I felt like I'd been here 20 years. I felt like I was at home. I felt like wow, and and the teaching and, and the teaching was so like-minded with with what I grew up with. Uh, Pastor Ralph Braun had a had a background with uh, Baraka Church and and Pastor Theme. My childhood pastor also had a Ken Jensen had a uh, a background with Baraka Church and, and Pastor Theme. And so in many ways, the uh, personalities were totally different. PJ and Ralph were not similar in personalities, but they were very similar and like-minded in their dedication to doctrine and their, um, in, in their, and their teaching of the Word of God. Line upon line, precept upon precept. And, uh, you know, Ralph got the overhead going and drew a cross and, and a top circle and a bottom circle. And I thought, hey, this is what I grew up with my whole life. I think I've been here my whole life. And then he drew a third circle. And I went, wait a minute. <laughs> That's something my pastor didn't have. There's a third circle here. How, how does this work? Anyway, I share those stories because um, this is what the author of Hebrews is doing here when he's paralleling Philadelphia with Philizenia. I'm going to show you that. Like I say, I don't want to get, um, because we're going to recognize strangers as family. 
we're going to see the parallel of strangers with brothers. And, and I risk, uh, of course, a lot of things doing this, but I want to show you this. Because I already showed you the Philadelphia, the Hey Philadelphia Minetto. That's the let Philadelphia abide. Let it continue, remain, abide, and dwell. Let Philadelphia meno. That's the imperative. It's a present active imperative. Philadelphia must abide. Philadelphia must meno. But then he says, taste Philozenius. And you see what you have there? What do you have there? Let me just try to change my coloring here. Nope. Oh, don't do that. All right. If I can remove all of those annotations, I would. I'll come back later and fix that. But we got Philadelphia and we got Philizania. That's what I'm trying to show you. Philadelphia, Philizania. They're compound nouns, both blended with philos love. You have Adelphos for brother, and you've got Xenos for stranger. Okay? And all these moron reporters and liberals and nut jobs that they, they, they constantly, they, they love using the word xenophobia, right? Xenophobia this and xenophobia that. And if uh, the president puts a travel ban on uh, Wuhan, China, because of a disease, and uh, they say, oh, you're just xenophobic. Now, you know the Greek noun that it's coming from. Xenos is a stranger. And xenophobia would be an irrational fear or hatred of strangers. Really not hatred, but it's used that way. It's a fear of strangers. This is a love of strangers. So it's not a phobia, it's a it's a, a philia, right? We've got different philias. Won't get into that. But the philias that you might have in uh, different things. But this is a stranger philia. And uh, to be a, a philozenia is parallel, in verse 2, is parallel to be a Philadelphia in verse 1. That's what I'm trying to highlight. And because um, because this is not exactly an exegetical hour, I don't have slides to show all this. I'm not giving you Strong's numbers. We're not surveying usages and, and doing all the rest. I'm just putting up there on the slide for you to see them side by side. So if Philadelphia is to continue, what is uh, Philozenia supposed to do? Well, it is, it's a negative imperative. And don't be neglected. Don't be neglected. So let uh, so let Philadelphia abide, and don't neglect Philizenia. Don't neglect hospitality. Philadelphia must abide, and hospitality must not be neglected. If you want to paraphrase it in a different way? That's that's a good way to do it. Okay. I'm going to keep that up as well because there's more. The author just goes beside himself when he uh, is uh, beginning this paragraph with these plays on words. And he's not done. The Philadelphia Philozenia 
tandem is not the only one here. There's, there's three tandems in these early verses. Hospitality. Hospitality is both a personal and corporate blessing. Recognizing strangers as family. You can be personally hospitable. A local church must be corporately hospitable. And it's more than just simply having um, one or two hospitable people in the church. <laughs> you know, it's not just the one guy with a gift. It's not just one or two friendly people that seem to be very suited to uh, to greet visitors. And uh, the the hospitality ministry or the mercy showing ministry, uh, giftedness in the hospitality ministry, they're they're a blessing in any flock. But the the spirit of welcoming, the spirit of hospitality, that has to be that that philizania has to be a a generated atmosphere, just like Philadelphia has to be a generated atmosphere within the local church. In other words, it's corporate, it's collective, it's all of us together. It's not just, uh, you know, the odd duck, the, the one or two friendly people. Um, you know, we, we assign them the visitation committee so that the rest of us can just be a bunch of grumps and curmudgeons and, and, uh, antisocial, uh, jerks. Okay. Um, no, uh, everybody together is to have the uh, the sacrificial love, the Philadelphia love, and the Philizenia love that we have. Love of the brethren and love of the strangers, both on a personal basis and a corporate basis. Recognizing strangers as family. And uh, and so we read that there in Hebrews 12.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. There's there's ignorant fruit that happens when in your ignorance, when you could be completely unaware, oblivious, clueless uh, to the fact that uh, God is testing you with um, with non-human testing circumstances. And I think he dispatches angels in different ways because more likely than not, human beings wouldn't be able to do the, accomplish the mission and keep a straight face. <laughs> um, in some cases, the testing of our hospitality, the testing of our grace, the testing of our love, the testing of our fruitfulness, uh, requires, uh, an angelic being to be able to, um, to maintain the uh the the role to maintain the scene to not break down and and lose it uh in a way because some of us uh you know are slower on the uptake some of us don't quite um exercise what we should exercise as quickly as we should exercise it and if the testing um episode involved a human being then uh, it's, it's possible that our lack of grace, uh, our lack of swift uh, love and other things. And in other words, the carnality can start bumping and and we just blow the whole thing up. And uh, the person that uh, was assigned to test us in that capacity, they uh, they they also go carnal 
And uh, so now it's a lose-lose, and, and and nobody's learning anything. So rather than a rather than a, a scenario like that, God has you know, on occasion, biblically and post-biblically, on in a, I think God still does it to this day. It seems this passage anyway seems to indicate that it it can happen on occasion. It might be, which is uh, written in this verse as to be a um, a thought process, something to factor into your thinking when you are uh, choosing to not neglect your hospitality. So do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And they've had an ignorant circumstance where they've borne fruit, not knowing that they were ministering to angels. All right. And that's uh, that's kind of a neat thing to consider. You know, have we ever had angels visit Austin Bible Church? I believe probably many times we've had angels visit Austin Bible Church. And uh, testing our hospitality, testing our grace, testing our uh, attitudes, displaying things. Remember, they're watching us. That's how they learn. So, issues here. The parallel expressions of Philadelphia and Philizenia are vivid, attention-grabbing, and memorable. The parallel expressions of Philadelphia and Philizenia are vivid, attention-grabbing, and memorable. They jump out at you in the Greek. They don't jump out at you in the English. The original recipients of this epistle it would have hit them upside the face like a, like a, uh, something that hits you upside the face. It would have been loud and clear to, uh, to the recipients. And, uh, it would have just jumped out at them like a screen with colors. Philadelphia, Philizenia. Oh, I get it. And, uh, and so it's vivid. It's attention grabbing. It's memorable. Hey, Philadelphia, Minato, taste Philizenius. May epilanthanesta. All right, that one's more hard to pronounce. But the verses start with the with the nouns, with Philadelphia, with Philizenia, then the verbs. So let Philadelphia abide. Let uh, Philizenia not be neglected, not be forgotten. That's what we see there. Okay. Understand, the New Testament and the Apostolic Fathers, they would make frequent exhortations to hospitality. The New Testament and the Apostolic Fathers make frequent exhortations to hospitality. And uh, I only listed one. I could have listed several more in the Apostolic Fathers. We're talking about Clement and Tertullian and Polycarp and... and, um, Irenaeus and Ignatius and all the other early church fathers. They're called the Apostolic Fathers. And in the Didache, we've got a a neat reading I wanted to share with you this morning as well. So we'll be looking at that here in a moment. But they exhort church-age saints to hospitality in a very uh, transformative way. Because before the church age, there was an er older cultural norm the the ancient near east uh was ferocious in their uh hospitality cultural norms 
so much so that it, it leads to some bad conclusions today. I think um, it gets abused. The cultural norms of the ancient Near East get abused today by liberals that try to dismiss Bible revelation and instead substitute cultural norms. And I don't want to get lost in those details. It's just the, the thought struck me. There were already in existence before the church age. So go back to Old Testament theology. Go back to Israel and their culture. Even if they didn't have an Old Testament, the Jewish people, the Hebrews of the ancient Near East, would have had a cultural norm of hospitality. Then, of course, the Old Testament gave them some doctrine. And in the Old Testament doctrine, there were, uh, in addition to the cultural norms of hospitality, there were uh, uh, passages from the law which commanded it. And it commanded it for the sake of remembering how Israel used to be bond slaves in Egypt. They used to be, uh, they used to be slaves. They, and, and so that should motivate their graciousness towards others, their hospitality towards others. And uh, there's other Old Testament passages that speak to hospitality as a part of who they are in, uh, as Old Testament believers. Okay. In other words, they're going to love the Lord their God and they're going to love their neighbor as themselves. That is, that is a hospitality principle of Old Testament doctrine. Now, New Testament doctrine comes along and just takes it completely to a new, uh, to a whole different, uh, a whole different level, a whole different playing division. Okay. In some respects, you could say that Old Testament hospitality is, uh, is triple A baseball, but New Testament hospitality, that's major leagues. Okay. That's the, that's the pinnacle. And the reason why it's the pinnacle is because we are a priesthood in Christ, that we have the love one another mandate with agape love in ways that are far beyond loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So far beyond that Jesus says, here's a new commandment for you, which in some ways isn't new at all, but in other ways is new like I'm trying to describe here. So we have New Testament exhortations. We have apostolic father exhortations. And these are uh, well known and should be easy for us to see as they uh, get more screen space. If I move this up top, I think. Yeah. I'm going to get better at this the more we practice. First Timothy 3.2, the overseer then must be above reproach. This is qualifications for an overseer in a local church, a gifted pastor teacher that's training his gift, preparing in maturity status um, before he's ready to become shepherd of a flock. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, philosenius, hospitable, able to teach. And it may not be philozenius, it, it is philozenos. Okay, it's a cognate adjective to the, the noun that we have here. 
Fill us in us, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Must be one who manages his own household well. These are all the descriptions of, of a qualified overseer in a local church. And included is an element of hospitality. Uh, if, if the man is completely inhospitable, if he's not philosenia, but uh, xenophobic, then, uh, in a, in a biblical way, not a, a liberal media way, if, uh, if, uh, if that's the case, then he's going to have real problems pastoring that church. If he hates visitors and cringes every time a visitor comes in, that's, that pastor's going to have trouble with that flock. So there's a reason why Philozenos is, uh, is listed there. It's also listed in Titus 1.8. Parallel text to uh, 1 Timothy 3 is Titus 1. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, but pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but Philozenos, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. In other words, you've got to know your doctrine and you've got to know the false doctrine that you are refuting. Anyway, in that list, in Titus 1, is Philozenos hospitable. And so you're welcoming. Stranger comes in and you're, uh, you're willing to love him to cross him over from Zenos to Adelphos if, in fact, God is adding a new brother to your flock. You want to be hospitable. You want to be welcoming. And you want to know, who are you? Where are you coming from? Why are you here? What are you hungry for? And uh, and those kind of things. And you have a genuine interest in uh, in, in where they're coming from and and uh, and what they're looking for. So that's Titus 1.8. Romans 12.13. We were just in Romans 12. I stopped too early, could have gotten down to this verse, because we were talking about uh, brotherly love, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not leaving behind indulgence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's where we stopped. We stopped reading there when we were talking about the Philadelphia uh, command. But let's keep going, and we're going to get to Philozenia here. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. That is so vital. You can't do that if you're just uh, streaming and podcasting and if you're just a passive recipient of doctrine and you're not actively serving the body of Christ in a local church. That's why as we put in podcasting and we put in live streaming and we put in all of these means, that are useful for the times and the occasions that you can't assemble, it breaks my heart when they become a substitute for the local church. When believers choose to forsake the um, serving in the body and uh, and just go to uh, the passive streaming, receiving of content for the rest of their lives. That's heartbreaking to me. Contributing to the needs of the saints practicing hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse as it says practicing dio pursuing pursuing dioko pursuing philozenos philozenia so pursue it chase it down you know pursue it i like the fact that it's pursuing 
chasing it, trying to catch it. That's the effort that it takes to pursue hospitality. How about First Peter four nine? So right here, okay. Some of you were some of you were pretty happy to see First Timothy three and Titus one because you thought, hey, that's just the pastor, that's just the overseer, that's that, you know, that's not me. Well, when you get into uh, Romans twelve, that's you, that's all of us, that's everybody, that's lottie dotty everybody because it's being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, and not, you know, this is everybody. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. This is everybody contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. This is everybody. Every one of us should be pursuing Philosenia. All right, third John. How often do we get to third John? Third John, verses five through eight. And this was a real issue and, and, uh, there was, um, a problem here. That had to be corrected. Writing to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Says, beloved, I, this is John writing to Gaius. I beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. You ever put your uh, earthly wealth and, and health in ratio, direct ratio to your spiritual well-being? to the capacity of your soul. That's what John does right here with Gaius. I think it's powerful. I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. For I have no greater joy than this, to, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And that's my joy as well. You know, when I hear about uh, Pastor Dan or Corpus Christi or Pastor Cliff and Bastrop, or, you know, to hear to hear that they're walking in truth, they're feeding their flocks, they're living the word of God. You know, that to me, there's no greater joy than that. In the, uh, beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. Because you say, hey, this seems like this is a Philadelphia passage. Because he's talking to the Agapetos, the beloved, and accomplishing for the, the Adelphos, the brethren. But then he says, and especially when they are Zenos, when they are strangers. Because there's the brethren that we know, the brethren that we serve with, that we abide with. There's the brethren that we serve, you know, normally, daily, in a, in a Philadelphia kind of way. But then there's also the brethren that are still strangers. And we have to love them in a Philistine kind of way, especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love, your agape love before the church. You do well. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. See, you're only doing this if you love the Lord. <coughs> for they went out for the sake of the name. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. You know, when we have visiting missionaries and pastors and they're serving the Lord, they're not going to take money from the unbelievers. They're not going to they're not going to resort to Madison Avenue promotion or gimmicks or any of that. They're serving the Lord, and we should support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I'm running out of time. I want to get to DDK, and then we'll have to pick up here next week. Um, oh, I can't do that there. Of course, that's the New American Standard Bible. I'm going to do it here. All right, so I'm looking for DDK 11. 
three through six. Now, this is not the Bible. This is not the New Testament. But this is the early, could even be first century, uh, at the very second century at the, at the latest. But I think uh, portions of Didache go back to the first century. Portions of the Didache are older than Revelation. And if you want, we can even read it in Greek. Well, let's not do that. I'm running out of time. Concerning the apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. And why I want to share this, and I'm really out of time. Hospitality so impacted the early church from Clement to, uh, I mean, all of them. They were all would talk about Philizenia. They would all talk about hospitality and the blessings they had in the early centuries that uh, the love for one another uh, demonstrated that they were believers in Christ. So anyway, here's how Didache put it. Concerning the apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord. But he is not to stay for more than one day, unless there is need, in which case he may stay a second day. He may stay another. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. (laughs) Doesn't that crack you up? All right. And when the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. <laughs> okay. Anyway, a little rule of thumb there in uh, in these things. So, uh, anyway, I just want to share that with you. Uh, the, the concept of hospitality had an impact it uh, in the early church. And uh, anyone who wants to read the DDK, if you don't have the DDK, don't have it available, uh, Grace Notes has it. Warren can email you a PDF. We'll have to pick up here next week with hospitality because there's more. There's more that's being talked about. And the hospitality towards angels, ministry, the ignorant ministry we can have with not knowing any better, knowing that we're ministering to angels is uh, is interesting. Okay. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this message. We got a good jump on Hebrews chapter 13. Father, I thank you for the closing exhortations that are very personal and very applicable that are just as uh, valid for us here today in loving the brethren and loving the strangers. I pray that we learn these things. I pray that we pay heed to the warnings that are given. And there's some pretty blunt expressions coming up related to uh, fornication and adultery and, and so forth. Father, we just we're going to preach it as it says and, uh, and and make the applications, Father. So we just thank you again for uh, brothers and sisters uh, and for the storehouse and the dispensary that Austin Bible Church is. We have such wealth because we are knit together by the teaching that you've provided. Father, thank you for that teaching. Thank you for knitting us together in love. Thank you for encouraging our hearts. Thank you for this infinite, unending wealth that we have. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.